You're listening to Tech Talk Central. This is Vicky Kolovu for Tech Talk Central, and we're here at Mobile World Congress. Uh, we're going to record a, an interesting podcast on smart cities, and I have with me Helen Keegan, who organized this and will be coordinating uh, the conversation. Um, there's also Paul Stringer from Equal Experts, Jeff Bean from Orion Lab, Labs, and Alex Bath from Mapbox. Welcome, gentlemen and lady. So, Helen, I'll give you the microphone. You can start the conversation. Thank you very much. Well, I'd just like to start um, with our guests telling them a little bit about themselves, who they are, who they work for, and why they're here, and uh, what they're excited about seeing at this year's Mobile World Congress. <coughs> Sorry. Thanks, Thanks Helen. Uh, Alex here with, uh, with Mapbox, we're a location platform for developers. Um, our, uh, our customers build uh, applications like, uh, for instance, Snapchat. We're a weather company that is built with like, Mapbox technology. We provide like, search services, map services, direction services. And this is obviously super interesting for uh, smart cities as well. Right? And we have a couple of initiatives like, uh, uh, along these lines, so I'm excited to be here today with you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jeff Bean with Orion Labs. Um, we've built out a uh, voice and data platform to connect users through voice to uh, communicate with each other, um, teams that are uh, need to coordinate tightly but are maybe remote and distant from each other um, to allow them to get their job done. Hello, uh, my name is Paul Stringer. I'm from a company called Equal Experts. We're a um, Predominantly a mobile software uh, consultancy, we do a lot of engineering for, for enterprises. Um, I'm uh, responsible for our mobile capability, um, where we're seeing more and more a need from clients for um, really kind of strong enterprise-level engineering um, in their mobile applications. So uh, that's where I'm, I'm interested in all those aspects um, this year at Mobile World Congress and seeing how much mobile is really making inroads into enterprises um, to help them do new things, do new things better uh, out there in the world. Thank you. That's great. So one of the hot topics, I suppose, in smart cities is transportation. I think if you talk to the average Joe on the street, that might be something that if you said smart cities, they would connect it with transport. Um, are we going to see autonomous buses? And how are our transport networks industry is going to cope with this massive change when the industry that they're in has, hasn't changed that much in a hundred years? Um, I think that this is Jeff um, from Orion. Uh, I think that transportation is going to, um, I mean, autonomous vehicles are definitely going to be coming and moving forward and, uh, you know, connecting those inside cities will be a very interesting prospect. Um, I personally think that connecting between cities for them will be a much more powerful initial uh, move. Um, but I think that as uh, transportation is a key infrastructure piece of cities, that, that the um, uh, building intelligence into those is going to be just a natural first step. Um, you're already seeing it, at least in San Francisco, where we're from. Um, uh, you can track any bus anywhere, uh, see when the next couple are coming at any stop. Um, it's really handy. So I think that, that that's really a, a very logical first step. Yeah, and you see this. You see this like uh, I think um, right now, also with like uh, already with like new systems being launched that make like our um, to give us more options on what we can choose and how we get around. Right. I think in the end of the day, this is going to be about uh, so addressing congestion, which is a massive problem right now. 
uh, and giving you like more and smarter options on how to get from A to B, right? So I want to highlight here, for instance, like Chump, <clears throat> that just recently came out like in a big way uh, with like a dockless um, bicycle shared rideshare system with electric bikes, right? And that's really interesting because when you look at like Chump's numbers, um, people like ride with an electric bike about twice as long uh, than they do with a regular bike, right? So now we're like really fundamentally changing and how people uh, can use like a simple system like a bike system, right? And now it's also shared, so I don't need to deal with like the huge cost that it would, you know, incur for me to buy an electric bicycle. I can just pick one up on up on the street side, and uh, and start using it. And this starts to become really, really interesting. So I think it's going to be be about like you know more options that I can use and access like like quicker and like in a smarter way. And uh, you know, like that's I think we're just at the beginning of like that uh, that happening. I'd love to add to that. Um, this is, I mean, I don't have any direct experience with transport except to use it myself. Uh, currently in London, I'm experimenting with the bike share systems they've got there. So we've seen uh, Mobike, uh, Ofo, a couple of other of these um, companies, which originally started out in China, where they've just put huge amounts of, almost you call it infrastructure, they've put these bikes uh, at such a level that they're literally there whenever you need them. Um, so we're seeing a little bit of that happen in London currently. So whenever I see one, I'm always interested in trying it out. Um, and my observation is is that currently, whilst they're just uh, pedal-powered still, you're still fully limited in, the, in, in how much your behavior would change to use one. But the, the moment they would become, as you mentioned, would jump in, in the U.S., electrified, you, you, the, the possibilities for your utilization of them goes up huge. The number of journeys you could take with them goes up very, very high. And that, to me, just is, is fascinating because I think that this is one of those examples where it's not a top-down infrastructure coming from a city and saying, like the Boris bikes that we have in London that we see here in, in, in Barcelona, where the city decides there will be a bike share scheme and it will be run by us and it will be sponsored by uh, this company here. Um, these are, are startups coming into cities and introducing these things really without the, the kind of coordination of the city itself. So almost overlaying onto it a, a, a new technology or platform which people are going to be able to use. Um, and, and so that's not a top-down management thing. That's kind of coming up from, from kind of companies and innovation. That's where it's heading from. Then you have the question though about how much will cities allow that to happen? How much will they accept that, that level of kind of overlaying stuff onto their infrastructure before they say, hang on, we're not really sure about all these things, all these electrified bikes being there. When will that, that those two things meet each other and, and who will kind of win out? Will it be innovation and, and kind of startups who will, and customer demand, or will cities come and take over that territory then from that? That's where I think that's interesting. So is that a question about business models as well in terms of how this stuff gets paid for, how it gets communicated, and does the city take a stake? I think it will be a question for them very much. Um, and, and I don't know, and this is where regulation comes in. The question of regulation um, is often what can, can have an influence on, on what is able to, to, to take place. And whilst you may be able to look at it and say, this is clearly better, that's not enough. Regulation can still come along and say, it may be better or it may be perceived as better, but if it's not deemed to be safe, if it's not deemed to be conformable or almost perhaps too competitive with our own services we're providing. For instance, I saw a stat in the UK and London that actual utilization of the tube is going down. And they're attributing that to the rise in, in, in cycling. 
there's a point at which they have a shortfall in their funding because of that. And so when do they uh, resist the urge to, to then say regulate in their own favor? Um, so I think these, these are big questions. I don't have any answers. I just think they're coming <laughs> down the line. And um, Jeff, you said something really interesting earlier about connecting cities. Could you expand on that for me a little? Uh, sure. Um, I think with uh, autonomous cars in particular and, and um, buses, trucking, all those things, that, that uh, initially it'll be, it'll be easier uh, to run those systems on um, uh, simpler networks, highways, um, and, and it'll be easier to go between individual uh, um, cities, towns, uh, rather than do lots of navigation with um, you know, lots more turns, uh, confusing streets, more people and bikes in the streets. It's going to be a much more difficult problem to solve. Uh, so I think that my guess is that we sort of see the um, inner city and interstate travel uh, a little earlier. Okay. And will that have an impact on the economy as well by bringing those communities closer together? Uh, sure. I actually think that people like, you know, with busing, um, the way people use intercity buses now, in my experience, um, you know, you, you get on, you, you sort of have your book or you're with your friends and you chat. Um, that experience is one that... Uh, if we have more autonomous uh, vehicles that, that can do this thing more efficiently and quickly, um, and the, the you know, highways are even safer because there are more autonomous vehicles, um, there are fewer human errors, um, that I think there, that there could be more people connecting these towns together and could, this, the network will feel smaller, ultimately. You, you just said connected, right, and, uh, and sort of networks like coming together. Uh, what's really interesting and what's emerging here is that it's not only that we have so many more options right now that are out there with, like, you know, Jump that I mentioned before and some other folks that we talked about. It's also that we know a lot more about how they move in cities, right? And we can then use this information to, like, make this available back out so that we make, like, our decisions and how we, like, move around in cities like smarter, right, in the end of the day. So for us, this being like as a mapping company, absolutely fundamental, right? And uh, especially against the backdrop that there's just so, such diverse ways of people, how people get around, right? The smartphone really delivers today like that interface to all of that. And it also delivers us like a really interesting way of like, understanding how, where, where people and how people move through uh, through the, the real world, right? So one very fundamental thing that we are thinking about and that we have implemented here over the years is how can we have like a privacy-safe system that allows us to understand how quickly move people through cities so that we can help make those systems in the end of the day smarter. In the end of the day, like, you know, when we talk about like, look, uh, like mobility, especially in cities, it comes down to the map that all of that happens on, right? So today, like with, you know, the SDKs that we're, in, that we're embedded in and customers like uh, Jump that we like talked about before, uh, or maybe Snapchat, the weather company and so forth, we're collecting a huge amount of data, right? Like we're doing currently every day, 225 million miles of telemetry data, this latitude, longitude, timestamp, trip ID data that we're collecting as people move in the real world. This is completely anonymized, right? But the picture that emerges for us and how people use a city is incredible. And the inefficiencies that we see in that are incredible. Uh, I think we need to like do, uh, um, uh, get, like, do a much better job in like, reinventing like, the transport systems that we have today and make them smarter so that we actually use our existing infrastructure uh, much, much better. And I think that's going to uh, require us to go uh, be much more aggressive on the cycling side. I think a lot is already happening there. Uh, autonomous cars are obviously going to be huge in that, right? And I think I agree, like, it's going to come first in the cities. But I think uh, very much, like, very quickly thereafter, you're going to see, like, you know, in 2019, 2020, going, going, folks going out there 
uh, putting like geofenced areas into cities where you can book an autonomous car and get from A to B with it in like very sort of like uh, uh, sort of uh, restricted areas. And I think there's going to be a huge change, but it's also going to mean that we need to invest in, you know, the some of the more traditional stuff like you know heavy rail right because people are still going to be like out there in the suburbs going to work in the morning right even if there's teleworking still there's going to be sort of like a certain like like level of moving and like sort of ebb and flow in the cities that is going to stay around so we have to then also leverage this data to also get like some of like the more like uh, uh, sort of high volume traditional systems in place that help us uh, move cities around. I think all of those decisions that we've been making, it's kind of incredible that sort of as humans, we've, making those, we've been making those decisions with no data <laughs> for such a long time, right? Like we're here in Barcelona, like look at like the old like gothic like town center, look at the crazy grid that they put in like in like neighborhoods like the Champlain, right? That was not done with any data, right? That was done like with a good hunch. Today we have so much data at our disposal to just make those like those decisions a lot smarter. And I think we're just at the very, very beginning to even understand and how we start to leverage like this information. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. So autonomous vehicles. I can't wait, frankly, for uh, autonomous uh, vehicles because I don't drive. I've lived in London too long. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm rel- reliant on public transport completely and it's a brilliant system and, yeah, I, I love it. But there are times when it would be really useful to get in a car when the train service just doesn't quite cut it for me when I'm going longer distances. So I'm really excited about that prospect of not having to learn to drive. But so many people I talk to outside of our industry are well, A, don't believe that it's going to happen, mm. and B, think it's just the worst idea ever, mm. and, and they're kind of afraid of that, and, oh, it won't take away, you know, the thrill of driving, and people won't want it. So will it happen? What, what do we need for, for it to happen beyond the technology that, that it works? We know it works. Who wants to take the question? I have two interesting numbers in this context. I just recently looked this up, right? So... Um, the average American uh, spends commuting, this commuting time that they spend is 10x the time that they spend rise, like raising their children. Yes. So you will, and it's actually like, think about it, right? You will spend more time in your car than with your kids between the age of zero and 18. That's right? mind blowing. That's mind blowing. So there's that, but there's also the, 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 the very shocking fact that in the US, we have about 37,000 uh, traffic casualties each year. That's like an airliner going down every day. I think there's like a huge issue here. Like autonomous driving will come as a necessity to address that, right? Once this technology becomes viable, it will become the no-brainer to implement because it will address like just something so fundamental as time, the time that we spend with our loved ones and the time that we have here on this planet, right? I think it's still, I think if we look at the hype cycle of where autonomous cars are, we're probably pretty near the height of it. And I think that possibly in the next couple of years, we're going to look at that kind of the next trough that comes along as it doesn't quite deliver yet, as soon as people are hoping that it might. Um, Does it work? I think it does work to some degree, but I think there's still, there's still a lot to be questioned about whether it will actually work quite well enough to the point where we'd be able to see it take over these roles and jobs, which, which... We're, we're hoping it would do to solve some of these problems that we have, which is just density in cities continues to increase. Populations still are choosing to move into cities. Cities are not going anywhere. They're just getting bigger and bigger. Um, and and the, we'll need technology and smart technology to be able to solve some of the problems that that's going to bring. Um, 
and I and I and I think it might be one of those interesting things where autonomous vehicles may have a bigger role to play outside of cities in terms of connecting cities, what you were talking about before. Because if you think about it, that's where you really need to just, you could use that time better served than just driving a vehicle down a motorway. A motorway is a fairly, I think for a car, uh, an autonomous car, an easier environment in which to, to, to take over the job. Whereas the job inside of a city is a much more difficult one, I think, to solve and whether we'll ever reach the point where we can just let them get on with it, maybe a lot further away than we think. I think that's why with, with all the kind of interest around autonomous cars and here at GSM, you will see there are cars everywhere. There are cars throughout this, this, this exhibition. And, and, and um, that's just interesting in itself, as in how mobile has kind of reached into all these industries now. And now we're seeing autonomous cars being part of this industry. Um, but I think, I think the one to, to keep an eye out on for is, again, the electric bike. It, it doesn't sound as sexy and it's not autonomous. Um, but what might be interesting is, is instead of us being driven around in cities, which is currently what we are, what we do, we, 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 a bus driver drives us or a taxi drives us. But when we're outside of cities, we drive ourselves. There's that interesting, I think it's called the Negroponte switch, which happened with, with, with mobile, with telephones and TVs. So the Negroponte switch is this observation that sometimes these things flip suddenly on a dime. So for instance, telefo- telof- telephony, telephony, telephony. telephony was once wired. And it was TV that was wireless. You used to come in over there, and we've just gone through a flip. We're telof- telof- telephony. telephony. Okay, you'd say that for me from now on. Uh, telephony. Is now wireless. But television is now wired through the internet, pretty much into your home. And so uh, this came, this was a presentation that I saw that somebody gave. It was fascinating where they said there's pot- the potential might be is that that switch might be about to happen in transportation. Urban centers where you're currently driven, you may start to drive yourself with, let's say, electric bikes or all manner of vehicles that might be conformable to cities, which might not look like cars, because cars are still tremendous. Whenever I look at a car driving through a city, I just look at it and see a gigantic waste of space. I look at it as the most inefficient way to achieve what it's trying to do. And there must be more efficient ways of doing it, And but I don't think they look like cars driving themselves. Whereas outside of cities where we tend to be, uh, where we might drive ourselves currently by driving ourselves long distances, we might be driven. And the thing that might be driving us might be then the car. So that's my, 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 the, my, my kind of view on where to watch this because I think that might be something we're not really looking for right now, but it might be the way that it could go. And I think if you look at China, again, initially, where they got the, 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 the cities which are, in terms of density, way out ahead even of our European cities or, or uh, North American cities, um, they're already going through this change. They're seeing, seeing this uptake, but they're not seeing the autonomous car really, really make much inroads into that. So it might just be different to how we're kind of, you know, the industry sees it currently. Uh, that's just um, stuff that I've seen that went, yeah, that, that would be interesting if that was to happen. So that's a lot, of, um, a lot about transport, but what else are we talking about when we're talking about in, um smart cities. One topic that came up yesterday at a reception I went to was the unconnected, the Mm. populations around the world who are unconnected. And we tend to make this assumption that the unconnected are those in parts of Africa or South America or countries that are later to the telephony game and the the mobile game. 
because uh, I know that Facebook has a big initiative to connect the unconnected in India and, and parts of Africa and what have you. But I met um, a lovely man yesterday who told me that 20% of the population in the UK are unconnected and that we have the unconnected in our own cities, um, particularly in poorer areas. And how do we connect those people up? And what infrastructure and business models maybe are needed to, to connect uh, the unconnected? And what happens if they're not connected, these 20% of people, and they can't log on to book their autonomous car or their electric bike or you know, they can't, they're not going to pay their bills uh, using uh, voice command. Um, so what, what happens there? What, what do we need to make that happen? Have you seen anything interesting or any comments on that? Uh, so um, I have seen a couple of years ago, I, I saw that there was a, um, a nonprofit group, um, I believe in the Bay Area, that was, that was actually just providing um, uh, inexpensive uh, smartphones to the homeless. Um, and, and what they found was that uh, those individuals that received them, once they had their own phone number, um, it gave it empowered them to uh, to access services that they couldn't otherwise um, uh, to have a permanent phone number so they can apply for jobs um, and so uh, it, it was a very small scale mostly anecdotal but um, but uh, seemed to seem to directly improve the lives of, of these people um, and I think that is you know that um, smartphone is, a, is an agent of change in, in many many ways but that's one that, that I think was fairly unexpected that people were you know excited to see talking about like the, the rights to your smartphone <laughs> yeah no like right because because sort of what you're saying resonates to me right because you're seeing it already with like sort of new services that become available like ride hailing services and so forth they have an impact for you if you're like a person with disabilities elderly you can still get around in the city right i think of my grandfather who had stopped had to stop driving and then his life entirely changed right because he couldn't use like his car anymore but you know if the gates to that is the smartphone, right? Like then you actually somehow have to make sure that everybody has one, mm. right? And it wouldn't feel like the supply of smartphones is something we're short of. I mean, people buy new ones every two years. That means there is a lot of them out there that, that could be being, uh, you know, passed on, used again. For instance, food distribution. Food distribution, where, you know, you have all this stuff, you have all this waste that you have. Um, and the problems are, how do you find that stuff? And I think somebody, I'm sure somebody, I heard about this, somebody built an app that was basically targeting uh, uh, homeless people and that and say, this is where the, 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 the food's going to be distributed from tonight. And they could go and find it using smartphones and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it seems a wonderful enabler um, if, if they can have access to this stuff and, and a terrible disadvantage if we keep all this stuff to preserve of those who can afford thousand pound smartphones uh, every two years and, and have access to power and, and, and Wi-Fi. So can we actually get connectivity across the city? Because if we're talking about those who are unbanked or don't have the money, they, they want to access free Wi-Fi. But we all know that free Wi-Fi is often really flaky uh, and it's off, it can be hacked really easily so your data gets stolen and there's all sorts of issues. So... Um, so I, that is definitely a, um, a concern, uh, though I've sort of take it to a more global level. Um, uh, in, in, in developing nations, I, I, th I always thought it was fascinating that when, when uh, they skipped over sort of the laptop era, when phones arrived, they immediately wanted large phones. It was their only, it was their only computing device. And we were uh, uh, here in America, we, uh, you know, 
everyone at the time was going for smaller and smaller devices. That was what was cool and sexy. But you couldn't sell, about four years ago, a phone that was smaller than five and a half or six inches diagonal um, uh, in, in, um, in India, for example. And um, I always thought that was that they, and now, you know, large phones are clearly the way that um, uh, people want them now um, around here. And I'm, I'm, I just always thought that was very, very interesting um, as an aspect to that. So another um, way of looking at it that uh, I heard about yesterday was using tower blocks and for the network operators and telcos and Wi-Fi providers to rent the space at the top of a tower block to connect the city using those masts on the top of the tower block to create a network and then that gives the tower block free Wi-Fi and the people within there that block-free Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's, that's, super, that's super interesting. And I'm also just thinking about like um, how we've been just actually recently working with um, with the FCC in the United States to actually know where those holes are, where like towers yeah. like that com- could even like be useful. Because that's in the first place. It's like, okay, how do you actually know what like your your broadband access is in the country, right? And it's like, you know, there's connectivity, right? And, but there's also the quality of that connectivity, like you said earlier. Uh, that really makes a huge difference in the terms of like your access to like economic opportunities in the end of the day. So the first step really has to be to actually knowing where those spots are. And I think there, then um, there is a responsibility for like you know for uh, administrations and cities, but also sort of like globally on a country level to like make sure that that access is like equitable to a certain degree and not only driven by okay how much money are we making like in what specific um, census block, right? GDPR. Everywhere I go at the moment, on my Facebook feeds, on my LinkedIn feeds, events, people are talking about GDPR in Europe, the data protection issues, the privacy issues, because we're creating ever more data about ourselves. And even though it's anonymous, it's kind of not anonymous. If you're doing a location-based thing, so somebody logs onto a Wi-Fi in a small cafe in a corner of Barcelona, and there are two people in there, and someone's hacking that Wi-Fi, they can spot the two people and their whole history of other places that they've been, because it's all based on their Wi-Fi connections in the past so it can build up a really interesting picture about that person just because you don't know the name and you don't know their home address or their mobile number doesn't mean you don't know them and and how do we tackle this about data is it something we need to be worrying about is it a culture change that we just need to suck it up and adapt to are there things in place that protect us I can speak to this. So for for us, obviously, as a location company that works a lot with location data, like privacy has been from the very, very, very get-go, huge. Um, like even before we launched our mobile and automotive SDKs that today gives access to location information and how people use our map, we had like uh, very extended sessions with, you know, the Electronic Frontier, Frontier Foundation that is really like like leading the way in the United States when it comes to uh, to data protect, protection, privacy, and security on the internet. Uh, and for us, you know, developing both like sort of a policy on how we deal with location data and how we keep it into, like, you know, absolutely private, how we like treat the data sort of not even an engineer who on our side who could have access to the data could somehow see, you know, what an individual is doing. 
all the way to like the actual implementation of the technology to make sure that things are privacy safe has been extremely important to us. Because I don't think that there's a way for us to build the future um, of smart cities without being super serious about these issues, right? Like, um, I mean, this for us as a company, this, it's essentially a liability of like, I do not ever want, you know, somebody like to hack us and then have data out there that basically compromises everything that we do. I do not want to be like subpoenaed by the police and um, or, or served with a warrant by the police and then have to disclose data that I do not want, that I don't want, that I don't even want to have like from in the first place, right? So for us, it was extremely important. And I think uh, today there are, we have, you have an increasingly an amount, like a number of players in the space that all of a sudden um, are wind up with this responsibility based on the services that they offer. This can be like cities, this can be like private parties, this can be companies, right? And I think it's from that perspective, it's very important to also have rules in place uh, that establish, okay, what's, what can you as a consumer expect with your data to happen, right? I think that's the, that, that's sort of like how we how we've been looking at, uh, at at this since before actually the most recent like discussions. Yeah, this is this is critical. Um, and in Orion Labs, we've been focused on um, data security from the beginning. Um, our our product is focused um, and our service is focused around enterprise and, and helping teams get their jobs done. And uh, uh, business security is is core to that. Um, uh, and so you know we have. And, and encryption and all that, but but when it comes down to it, that that's just that's a piece of it. Um, across a smart city, you know, uh, data security by organization um, uh, uh, across the board, it's it's just it's it's, it's important uh, both to protect citizens and their own data, but also to to um, uh, protect from you know uh, actual uh, hostile acts. Um, uh, that's that's indeed very critical and something that you know uh, private citizens should never have any information. Um, uh, for certain aspects of utilities and, and things like that. So, um, no, security is clearly uh, key to this whole city, a smart city solution. But are we dealing with security? Well, can we deal with it? Because it seems to me that there's a hacker that can hack even the most secure stuff. Um, now, it might just be my perception is greater than the actuality, but I'm hearing all the time of... I mean, I only heard um, a couple of days ago that a friend had stopped a transaction uh, at a department store online because, and it's only because he had two-factor authentication that he knew someone somehow had got his credit card number and he's no idea how uh, and was trying to use it to, to buy a new TV. Well, I think the security issue is, is a massive one. I think that the, the explosion of IoT devices... Um, in the rush to get them out there, I don't know if as much um, thought has been given to the security of those things. And, and the idea of putting all this stuff inside your home, which may not have the most you know, thought put into the security of those things, I think opens people up to a huge amount of risk, which they don't particularly know um, that they're taking on. And I think that the, as this stuff becomes more and more, again, if we look at a city, if it's going to do a, a lot of these things and connect a lot of these things together, um, the, the, the possibilities for people taking advantage of, of, of that in ways which we would not like them to, I think, is, is a massive one. And so it's not only people's own privacy, but it's also the security of us all generally um, that, that we're, we're paying correct, um, kind of giving it enough attention. 
when we're looking at what those things are, we're plugging into our home. What are they broadcasting? What are they telling us about us to people who could just be driving? In the good old days, it's called war driving. You could drive around and, and figure out people's Wi-Fi or just, I, I've forgotten what the actual purpose was, of that was. I don't know, war chalking. It was, war to, chalking. It was to get free Wi-Fi. Yeah. But the idea now that you'd be able to, for instance, uh, an example is, could you, could you at- attack a city by some new kind of vector that could be enabled by the mass proliferation of, let's just say, one category of device that is very popular that people have in their homes. What, like um, a router? Routers, kettles, things that could spike energy supplies, whatever they might be. Autonomous cars. So, uh, again, I have no answers. I just kind of think that these are the things which will become more... We, need to, we just need to take care of what it is we're doing because I think that it's, uh, it, it's very new territory and there may be always these unintended consequences of this um, that, that, that we have to sort of just be, just be aware of. So that as well as the privacy side of things, which is, again, also that's is so important. So where does deep thinking fit in in an agile environment? Because when we're talking about app developers and software development, we're always talking about rapid prototyping, making things in an agile way and moving it, getting out there, moving forward. Come on, let's do this. Yet, we need some really deep thinking about the consequences of software development. We need to think about the implications of these algorithms, how they might affect human beings in real life, what the unintended consequences might be. Having those really difficult difficult conversations around autonomous cars, around does the car kill the child in the traffic accident or the driver? And, and how, how do you deal with that? And how do we instill that time and that culture of thinking? So as somebody with a massive smartphone addiction, I'm not qualified to speak about deep thinking. Um, <laughs> but I will say this, what's been very, very interesting to me to see like in the field of innovation, I'm so, so personally, I was like a background developer. I grew up with, you know, like the waterfall methods of like developing stuff where you have like big plans and then you like execute on those big plans, went through the whole revolution of like agile development where you'll have small teams and you like uh, put a huge focus on putting out first, you know, viable like implementations of what you want to build and do this in like many iterations and build that way. So, so what's to me really interesting to think about is how our like sort of connected lives and our new access to information, our ability to communicate across oceans. I mean, we have today like teams in San Francisco, DC, Minsk, Bangalore, Shanghai, right? How that actually creates a completely new way of like tackling problems, right? Like we're now 300 people. We can distribute a new problem across the team that can come up with separate solutions in separate places. And we can then come together and learn for, for learn about like uh, what worked best, right? At the same time, you know, this, this works across teams uh, in, in similar fashions. It's just when you look today at what's going on in Silicon Valley in the race to like the t- autonomous driving, I mean, there's a, massive, there's, a, there's, a, there's a massive sort of hive mind at work today, right, that exchanges information in a way that we haven't ever seen before. So I'm really curious to see as this is panning out how we as, sort of, as, as, as humankind are going to like sort of tackle future challenges because things really start to just distribute, uh, in, in, and that's not only like in terms of like smart devices, but it's also in terms of how we as sort of humankind think about solving new problems. Like we're going into like you know basically a state of hive mind and a state of connectedness in this as well. I look at this very much from the from the software engineering perspective because that's my, that's my trade, um, and I do think this question comes down to one of to, to one of almost the ethics of, of, of software engineers in this industry. So 
we have, you know, we, we often do see the job as one of getting the thing done. Uh, let's get it out there. Uh, let's just ship this thing and see, see what sticks and what doesn't. The consequences, though, of just doing that without consideration of that, given that we're putting software in places in cities and stuff where it, there are consequences for, for things if, if that was to go wrong. When you're, you're asked to meet that deadline, to rush that product, if you have a sense that this thing isn't ready, it shouldn't really be out there in the world, there's, there's a question about, do you push back on that? Do you have a set of principles that guide your approach to engineering that says, just as we have in, other, in, in, in mechanical engineering or uh, civil engineering uh, or other professions, they, they work by a code of ethics that says they will bring no harm to people by their actions and stuff. And whilst those industries might have more regulation around, the software industry doesn't have one particularly. We don't have a, a, an agreed set of principles or ethics or principles. Nobody in software can agree on what the right approach is to software engineering. Everybody's got a different idea. We've got different tools, different technologies, different practices, which we all like to deploy. Um, and and the, the danger is, is that if we just keep pushing forward without any consideration to the, to the potential consequences of what we do and continually just point at the management and say, well, that guy told me, so that's what I did. It's like you, you have to kind of say, well, actually, would somebody in another profession just do that if they thought it might bring harm to others? And I think that as the, the as software just becomes so part of the fabric of everything and the potential for it to, to potentially do harm if used in, in, in ways that we don't anticipate or expect means we might have to look a little bit more at, at uh, what our role is in the production of that stuff that potentially could be harmful. So should there be like an oath for developers like there is one for doctors? Well, that is, there is discussion in our industry about that. I mean, you look at, um, there's, there's, there's the scribe's oath, which was an old-time um, tradition which the people who had the power to, to write uh, back when that wasn't a common thing, they, they all lived by an oath that they would, they would faithfully execute their the, the duty, which was to not change it, not to do other things to it. And that, we, and that perhaps as an industry, we, we need to have some of that. Otherwise, we're going to get regulated. Because if we don't take care of our own business, somebody will do it for us. And we would prefer not to have that, I think, because I think that would just stifle what has been an incredibly innovative industry. But, um, but uh, you know, governments do have a tendency to come along and regulate things they don't like, that they are unable to regulate themselves. So doctor professions regulate themselves. Accountants regulate themselves. What is the body that regulates software development? And the, the, the big example that we have now is Volkswagen and the car and the diesel scandal. That was a bunch of engineers who put their hand up and said, the guy told me to do it. And the management said, it's a couple of rogue engineers who just decided for whatever reason to go and do this. Now, the effects of that probably aren't huge, but who knows? Who knows what the impact has been on the health of people from all these cars running around emitting more than what was deemed to be safe to emit. And, and those engineers knew exactly what they were doing. I don't want to rag on these engineers particularly. They probably just did what they thought they were doing their job. But there was because there was no set of ethics that told them, as a profession, we don't do this kind of thing. They just believed that it's just writing software and it, you meet the deadline and that's what's important, not what it does. So these are the, I think there are big ethical questions around as the more and more what the work that we do is, is not just for games or not just for uh, whatever else it might be, more important fundamental things about kind of our lives. I, I agree. It's super interesting. It, it reminds me of the uh, fairly recent um, 
scandal with some car sharing services wherein they um, they had built out uh, software systems to identify which users may in fact be um, police officers and um, try to foil them from obtaining that car, uh, the car services. And in that instance, the people who were writing that software, I'm sure knew exactly what they have been asked to do and did it without question. Or maybe they had question, but they didn't push enough on that question to say, as an industry, we don't do that kind of thing. Right, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting problem. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how it sort of works out. From my, my perspective, is more from design and hardware. Um, and uh, from, the, from the hardware end, we are... Um, we are constantly trying, I'm constantly trying to, to sort of uh, uh, select best components that have, you know, the security features built in and, and vet them properly and um, uh, hoping that I enable those hooks to, to, the, uh, to the software side of things to make sure they have access. And so it's a um, critical step in the process for us. So there's a lot of thinking that needs to go on here. I really like the idea of the, the uh, code of ethics or the oath that a software engineer might take but when we're designing things that are so fundamental to daily lives of everybody when it comes to this big stuff around smart cities how do we get the thinking in from other disciplines from art and from philosophy and from the other humanities and involve other people in the the decision making and and how these systems and services and and apps get built because at the moment it feels like again it may just be my perception but it feels like it's just the software engineers making these decisions so how how do we affect that culture change is it is it indeed needed or do we send software devs to school to learn philosophy we actually have uh, a whole bunch of software engineers that were actually philosophy majors. Fantastic. <laughs> so I think there is actually like an angle here that has been very important and near and dear to like our hearts, which is is sort of the diversity of your team, right? So like, who are the software engineers, right? Are these like your like typical white male, like 30-year-olds that, you know, make all the decisions on what the future of mobility looks like, right, or the future of smart cities looks like, or are you going to have policies in place that allow you to have, like, very specifically a very diverse team across, like, you know, genders, across um, across uh, ethnicities, right? Uh, and that for us has uh, been very important because we believe that the more diverse your team is, the better the solution it will be that you create because in the end of the day, we don't build, like, a location platform for 30-year-old white developers, but we built that for everybody. So we have to have everybody on board. I think that's number one that's super, super important. Number two, like I think, so as, as, as developers, the way we look at um, sort of creativity in the world and uh, facilitating like decisions being made very much as tool makers. So what are the best tools that I can give you to like build a better future? I don't want to actually suppose too much about what the future looks like that you build. I want to enable you. Uh, and this is, you know, why, you know, we, still, we talked about Jump before. I think that's a great example. They're looking at, they're using Mapbox for um, distributing bikes better in cities to make sure the bike is where it needs to be at the right time, right? Well, how they do that on top of our platform shouldn't be our decision. We want to enable you to do that. And then lastly, one more thing, so there's a point three, like, you know, what do we as, as developers have? Now, let's assume like we're all the great diverse developers at here. What is the tools that we have to actually bring those tools, to, to, to bring those those solutions out there, right? 
And there, you know, and it came up before already a little bit and it made me at least think of it, um, you know, things like natural, net neutrality are really, really important, right? So what future are we going into? Like, are we going into in the future where, like, large corporations get to dominate, like, the markets uh, and their solutions get to dominate and how we solve our, like, you know, growth problems in smart cities, delivery and so forth? Or do we have systems in place and an economy in place that allows small startups to come up and reinvent what can be done uh, in, in, a, in a completely new way and in a better way. <clears throat> I totally uh, completely agree with the diversity and, and uh, of, of voices uh, bringing solutions, um, working together is really uh, core to making these things work out. Um, uh, and providing tools is also critical. We are, our focus, you know, as a, as a, as a voice uh, communication company, uh, one of our biggest uh, customers early on was based in the parks and rec industry, which is um, absolutely part of it. Bringing uh, communities, uh, providing places for families to go, at, and um, festivals, experiences that that make an urban center more of a, a home for the community rather than just you know uh, concrete walls everywhere. Um, and and we've been trying very much to provide tools that that allow these teams to work together and and um, and solve their own problems internally. And so I think that's uh, that's also yeah very uh, core to what the what we need to do. I just. Just to finish up on that point, I think the, the definitely the diversity thing is a good thing. I think the, a lot of the issues around perhaps um, the not being so much a, a ethics or, or people just taking it. Hang on, is this what I'm is what I'm doing here right? Um, becomes a lot because software has become really much just a young man's game, um, and and younger people have less of these concerns. They just want to get the job done and get out there and, and do it. And this is. A side effect of the demand for software. There is so much software that's necessary, that's needed now. That the, the, the problems we have is supplying um, enough engineers out there who can do it, and so and the pressures are just to get in there and do it. But uh, mixing these teams up, it being less a kind of you know sort of um, um, you know monoculture, um, definitely helps. And I think that includes bringing people, keeping people within the industry with more experience, like people who've been around, you know, people like myself, maybe who've been, you know, around the block a few times and are more able to think, you know what, the job is not just to, to get the software out the door, it's to get out the door, but in a way in which is uh, we, we, can, we can depend on it. Uh, we know it does the right thing. We know that we, are, that we haven't done anything in there which we wouldn't be proud of. Um, and that and that just comes with I think that there's, there's an element of maturity that brings that to it, and so having teams which have kind of not just different diversity in terms of background, but also age and experience and those things too, really help that because I think that you're definitely in communicating as well when you work in teams, you talk, you bounce these things around, you you get a sense of that what the problem is when you have people headphones on, just staring at a screen, just uh, not really having much much beyond that 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 blinkered view of their own. So all those things. Um, I think I help again. No, no one easy answer, but just just uh, hopefully that's the direction we are moving in anyway. So we're here at Mobile World Congress, and the exhibition halls are absolutely jam-packed full of stuff going on, <laughs> and it's the antithesis of people sitting at their desk with their headphones on, where there's kind of silence and people coding away and uh, looking at their screens. So, what have you seen? Um, I've, uh, uh, let's see. I actually haven't been able to get out that uh, much recently. There's been lots and lots of meetings, <laughs> so I've seen a lot of stuff from above walking to the Skyway. Um, uh, I've uh, I've been uh, pretty impressed walking through it um, 
it's my first time at the uh, Barcelona Mobile World Congress. Um, uh, the scale of this one is just so huge and uh, uh, amazing. Um, so I'm looking forward to like exploring a little more and uh, finding out what's going on. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to, to spending the rest of today and tomorrow just seeing, seeing. I mean, there is so much there that it's almost like, I don't even know where to start with this stuff, but you just, you just walk around, you see interesting stuff. And um, I think what's interesting about these shows is it's never what you thought you came to come and see that, that you leave with, but you always find something new that you didn't expect to kind of come and, f come and uh, discover, um, and which leads you off in new interesting directions. So um, I guess I'm looking forward to, to what I'm not expecting to see out there in the next day or two. Samsung S9 uh, with a new camera that allows you to like, you know, apply like, you know, makeup to your face and chopped it from there. I think that's like just the start of like how crazy this is going to get with augmented reality, right? Um, this is, I think people don't quite understand how huge this is going to be, right? Just like AR Core and AR Kit coming out last year has enabled something that I don't think we have seen before that often. This is 200 million, million devices out there now that are enabled for the technology and has all to do with the camera that you look through and we're using this today. It's in all of our pockets. There's a huge, I think we're about to see a huge change in how we interact with our surroundings and looking through our camera. This is also like how we, like, you know, this week also launched like our location technology embedded in that because it's not only going to be about, uh, you know, seeing things on your tabletop, but it's also going to be about holding up your camera and understanding, you know, the last half block and how you get to like the backdoor entrance to deliver the parcel that you deliver as a delivery person, for instance, right? So I think that's huge and it's been very exciting to, it's been very exciting to see like how much is moving here on very fundamental technology that is about to make that game change happen. I'd like to ask a question, going back to smart cities. So we talked about autonomous driving, we talked about transport, the grid. What's the, something that I, we haven't thought, I haven't thought about, but it's going to change our lives as citizens in the city. Can you make a prediction? Are you seeing something? Um, what's going to be affected by technology next in our city and how we live in the city? Uh, I, <clears throat> I think that the, um, with smart cities, the, the biggest innovations are going to be invisible mostly to the people uh, day to day. Um, uh, I, I think that, you know, I believe the voice control is going to be a major aspect of, of how uh, uh, city employees get things done. Um, uh, people on buses uh, communicating back to dispatch or, um, you know, the person on the utility pole fixing the power for everybody else. I think that there's uh, uh, communication needs that are going to be, uh, that are part of the infrastructure um, that will be uh, seamless to, to, to the, uh, you know, the people on the streets, but, but will make their lives better every day. I'm going to go back to my, my um, thoughts on e-bikes. I think that over the next couple of years, um, we might just be on the precipice of that, that, that change coming into cities. And that I think when it happens, it may happen at such a rate, almost like the rate at which smartphones suddenly came from nowhere and then took over the industry in a, in a short amount of time. So I would predict that, that we'll see a lot more of that. We'll see a lot more journeys through cities happening using a using multiple kinds of ways of transport rather than just the bus journey or the taxi or the whatever, but we'll be getting from one end of the city to another, um, flitting between these different modes of transport. So I think e-bikes will have a large role in that. Um, we can see it in the US with the infrastructure that's being put in place to, to enable that as well. Um, so my prediction would be that I think in a couple of years' time, there'll still be the cars at uh, Mobile World Congress, but I think we'll also start to see a lot of bikes because mobile is going to have a tremendous kind of role to play in, in the, the, that transformation of bikes coming into cities. Before I pass on to you, Alex, I just want to contribute with my two cents. I'm a motorcycle driver. 
So in a quite congested city. And I always agree with you that cars take up too much space. They actually cause a traffic problem. But I haven't seen anything with motorcycles, you know, um, technology getting into that. You know, I've heard about helmets that will notify um, the authorities once I have an accident. I've seen those kind of things. But I think there is a tendency there. How about Alex? How about you, Alex? What changes do you expect? Yeah, I think the shortest is, has already like sort of um, been brought up here a couple of times. It's it's multimodal, right? Like there are it's more options. This is not about like hey, we're going to be only driving autonomous anymore, and the autonomous car is going to deliver like the solution for everything. That no, we will have like more tools at our disposal, and hence we also have to have like the smarter systems that allow us to like use them in a in a, in a wise way, right? Uh, and again, right, they are like, you know, our ability to like, you know, make smart choices like on the spot is going to be absolutely critical. Uh, none of these like, you know, new things that are going to come are going to be a panacea, right? Like uh, there are going to be like, you know, things like the massive congestion. They're going to continue things that uh, we need to actively wor work on. Uh, they're not going to be just um, solved by better traffic information or autonomous cars, but we'll have more tools at our disposal to actually act on them. And we'll also have more actors in the space who will try to solve these problems very like uh, proactively. Like, you know, today, you know, ride hailing services are already sort of a harbinger of that, right? It's not only a city only anymore providing uh, providing like the uh, mobility services uh, for, for your area. It's like a multitude of like... Uh, companies and I think it's this is happening because it is possible right it is it is possible because we have the smartphones it's possible because we can manufacture cheaper it is happen it is possible because uh, the internet provides like just abilities for like smaller new companies to come out there and and, and provide like new solutions and that's that's very very exciting I think you know that future that we're starting here this is going to be something that's going to like occupy us for like the rest of our lives and beyond there's also not very quickly going to be like sort of a sea change and it's over and then we have sort of the new new this is going. This is the very, very first steps of many steps on how we're going to like evolve now in a completely different way and how we think about our day-to-day -day lives, and especially in cities, but actually also like and how we move in the world, like in general, right? That's fantastic. What a really interesting conversation around all kinds of topics uh, on smart cities. I want to thank Alex, Jeff, Paul, Vicky, and I'm Helen. Um, we're at Mobile World Congress 2018. This has been a podcast about smart cities with Tech Talk Central. Thank you very much. You're listening to Tech Talk Central.